You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We're in a series called Life on Fire. And so if you have your Bible, you're going to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've done chapter 1. We've gone through chapter 2. We're going to jump right back in at chapter 3. But as you're opening your Bible to that, I'm going to talk with you a little bit about volleyball. Uh, I played a lot of sports growing up, soccer, other sports. Uh, but probably volleyball had my heart more than any other sport. And I'm, I'm strategic, right? So I would figure out things to do in volleyball that maybe people haven't done before. And one of the things I figured out is, uh, let's say you're on the weak side. Maybe if you're a volleyball player, you get what I'm talking about. But if you're on the weak side and you're an outside hitter, so you're going to hit like down the line, uh, I had a shoulder injury in college and I couldn't fully hit with my right arm well. So I would uh, go up and I pretend like I'm going to hit angle. So I'd put my whole body language, everything, like I'm going to hit that way. That's angle. So I'm going to hit across my body, right? The whole thing like this. But one thing I figured out is whenever you swing in volleyball, the people who are there to block you, they're up like this. They go like that. They blink. And uh, it's, just, it's just human reaction. So they close their eyes, they extend, they try to block. So it didn't matter when I was going to go up. If I swung at them, they would blink. It's just the way it works. So I would go up, look like I'm going angle, like I'm going to hit my right hand. The ball is coming across like this. And what I'd do is I'd swing early when the ball's about here. And I'd swing, they'd blink. Then with my left hand, I'd crush it down the line this way. So everybody, everything is going angle. They're all covering angle. And I would hit across the top of my body like this and hit down the line with my left hand. Now when my shoulder healed up, I kept that move in my pocket. Right? So anytime on the weak side, if I wanted, I could pretend angle and I could hit down the line. It's a good thing to do. It's kind of fun to figure out something, even though it was an injury that really drove that. And, and one thing you got to realize in volleyball is one of the main things you do is you tool the opponent. What does that mean? It means that basically that you um, use their hands as a tool to score a point for yourself. So what will happen is I'm going to turn around like we're playing on the same team. So let's say I'm going to hit the ball, and the ball is coming across like this, right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to hit with my right hand, but the other people are trying to block me. And so their hands are up like this, and instead of going angle into the court, I'm actually going to pretend angle, but as their hand is up like, like that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to turn my hand around this way and hit the ball as hard as I can off their hands. It'll either go off their hands and out, or it will go off their hands back over my shoulder and out of bounds, which is a point for my team. It's called tooling them. You're using their hands. You're using them as a tool to score a point for your team. And it's called deflection, right? I want to deflect the ball off their hand to score a point for my team. And it's just a great thing. So uh, I'm going to just give you that ball right now there. It, give it back to me at the end. I won't need it until then. But basically, volleyball is great to do that. We use deflection. Chances are you use deflection all the time. There are times in your life or in my life where you use deflection to score a point for yourself. It happens all the time. Think about when the last time you got in an argument. You get in an argument with somebody, and some of you use what's called deflection to take the issue off the issue you're arguing about and make it about a little teeny issue because you just feel like you need a point for yourself. Right? You're going to say, here's the issue we're talking about, but you're going to come up with something that the other person did wrong, and you're going to deflect it off them to try to get them off their game and score a point for yourself. And it's called deflection. It's called blame. It's what we do all the time. Sometimes you'll do it in conversation. You will deflect off another person to make yourself look bigger and better. You will puff yourself up by deflecting off somebody else. 
you'll use deflection. You'll try to make yourself look bigger. Why? Because something in our core, something in our nature, wants to make life all about us. You get in an argument that just gets accelerated, right? But here's what's happened. Whenever you and I take life and make it all about us, when we make the world centered around ourselves, we think we're deflecting. We think we're making ourselves bigger and better. We think we're blocking it off their hands and out of bounds to score a point for ourselves. But what often happens is that you go up and you swing and you hit that ball and it gets deflected right back in your face. If you've ever played sports or ever played volleyball and you've had a deflection by your own power back in your own face, it's not a very good experience. It hurts because you are actually crushing the ball as hard as you can and there might be a triple block up and it's coming right back at you. And a lot of times its direct angle is right at your nose. It's at your face. For a number of years in volleyball, uh, I, wear, I wear glasses uh, a lot of times and I have contacts. But before contacts actually worked for my astigmatism, for my eye, I had to do the Kurt Rambis you know, uh, glasses that were like goggles like this. Maybe some of you remember Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with his, you know, like goggles he had to wear. Well, it takes away your peripheral vision. For about two years there, I got blocked more than I've ever gotten blocked in my entire life. The day that contacts worked for me, I stopped getting blocked largely. Why? Because the peripheral vision came back. But sometimes we get that tunnel vision. We think if I could just make life all about me, it's like looking through a tunnel. And what happens is we keep getting blocked and it comes back in our face. Here's why you need this sermon. I want God to strengthen you, and I want God to encourage you that he loves you. He loves you so much, he wants to help you identify counterfeit beliefs, counterfeit behaviors that end up hurting yourself. He wants to guard you from false teachers and false philosophies in our culture that end up causing you to serve self or serve pleasure because they are terrible lovers. When you love self, when you love pleasure they're just terrible lovers they're empty it doesn't work and God wants you and I to move from being a lover of self to being a lover of God for the right reasons out of the right motives out of a heart that is soft for him and no matter how hard your heart is or how cold your heart is or how distant you feel from God I want you today to know that he loves you that he is wooing you back to himself that he is so glad that you're here and it's no accident that you're here at such a time as this. This is my hope. This is my prayer for you. See, Paul has already instructed the church to run away from sin and run toward righteousness. We talked about that, that we got to run away from what's bad, but we need to run toward righteousness. Otherwise, we run in a circle, we end up bumping right back into ourselves. So we want to run away from sin, but we got to run toward what is right, toward what is good, toward the help of God's Holy Spirit, not just our human doing, or we'll run in a circle and we'll bump right back into ourselves. In fact, we gave you this quote, the secret of holiness is the relentless rejection of sin, coupled with the relentless pursuit of righteousness. That's not all just human doing, but it's running away from sin, but it's running toward I am in pursuit of, I am in hot pursuit of righteousness. That's where there's healing. That's where there's hope. So now Paul begins to talk about the traits of the kind of people and the kind of false teachers who don't run after righteousness. These are the kind of false people and false teachers who run after the love of self. If you have your Bible, look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Peoples will be lovers of 
Right. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of what? Pleasure rather than lovers of who? God having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Well, Paul starts off talking to Timothy. This is the last book that Paul's going to write. He's in prison. He's about to go be martyred. But he's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, here's some things I want you to understand. And the first thing he says there is, mark this. This is important. There will be terrible times in when the last days. Well, we've got to figure out when are those? When are the last days? When's that happening? When are the end times? When's all that going down? Well, I want you to understand in Scripture that the last days began with the words of Jesus. The last days began with the words of Jesus, if you're taking notes. Hebrews 1, 2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. This is speaking of God whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. You say, where was Jesus Christ when the universe was formed? The universe was formed in him, through him, by his word, by his power. God in essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God spoke creation into being. But the last days began with the words of his son. In Acts 2, 16 and 17, Paul counters, he says no, Luke counters rather, and says no to his argument. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And in 1 John 2, 18, he says, John says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So Paul's made this argument. This is what life looks like in the end times. This is what life looks like in the last days. And as you go through that major list at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3, you begin to say, this looks a lot like our world right now. That's how people are. That's how I find myself being sometimes, right? We begin to look and go, ah, oh, some of those things, all too many of those seem to exist in me and want to work their way out through me. The many antichrists that John would allude to, he's saying, listen, yes, there is an antichrist that comes. But you got to realize there's many antichrists, and the biggest user of being an antichrist is the person who loves self and loves pleasure instead of loving God. They love themselves more than they love God. But you got to realize something about self and something about pleasure that neither self nor pleasure lasts. They're terrible lovers. When you fall in love with self, you're going to find it empty. The world and your soul was not created to handle a world that exists all about you, that revolves all around you. When you pursue pleasure, you're going to find it empty. That a pleasure will be a, a good, it'll be a, a good, a pleasurable experience. Even sin has a temporary pleasures of sin. The problem is it's a temporary pleasure of sin. That it has the law of diminishing returns. That you'll pursue one event, one pleasure. You'll pursue that thing and think, this is going to make me whole, this is going to make me happy. And you pursue it and you find out that it doesn't. And maybe for you, you experience a pleasurable experience and then you have the law of diminishing returns, which means it takes more 
or deeper to get the same high you got at the beginning. So if you're using drugs, you have to have more and deeper of what once gave you a high that you had, but you can't get it anymore. It just takes more. And so now you are trapped by what you, the pleasure you were hoping to experience. It's not the same. Maybe for you, it's a relationship, and you are in love with being in love. And as soon as that relationship you're in falls out of love, then you pursue not that person any longer. You're now pursuing love because you're not in love with people. You're in love with being in love. And maybe you're going from relationship to relationship because you're in love. Maybe you're married, and maybe you're hitting year three or year seven, and you're, so you hear about this year seven itch. You know what happens at year seven itch? What happens is you finally figure out that the other person no longer worships you like you worship you. So you don't have a crisis of relationship. You have a crisis of worship. And you start to think, well, maybe I could find somebody else who will worship me like I worship me. Why? Because you're a lover of self. You're a lover of pleasure instead of being a lover of God. And we have a world that's confused, looking for the one, but the one in their definition is the one who will worship me like I worship me. There's only one who worships you and gave his life for you. And draws you to worship him because he's your creator. He's your soulmate, the one and only. Anybody else is a helpmate. God intended it that way. Because he's the one who's passionate about our soul. He's the one who will never leave us, never forsake us. He's the one who is always good, good, oh, right? He is good. That's the way God is. So we get in the crazy cycle in our culture. We're always looking for someone to worship us like we worship us. So dads or moms, I want you to think back for a minute. Let me just talk to the dads for a minute. It's Father's Day. So if God has blessed you with the gift of a child to be a dad, I want you to think about the first time maybe you held that little baby. And you looked at that little baby, and I imagine you were in the hospital, you picked it up from the little bassinet, and you, and you were holding that baby, and you were, you were just looking at that baby, and, and you thought to yourself, you thought, oh, I can't wait. This is so amazing. I can't wait. I can't wait till this little child is a lover of money. I can't wait. I can't wait until this, this child is boastful and proud. Maybe they're abusive, disobedient. I can't wait till they disobey their parents. You just can't wait. You're so excited, right? I can't wait till they're ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. No parent sits there and says, I can't wait for that little baby to be those things. No one does. No parent thinks that. But if you want that to come true, that your kids are not those things, then you cannot make the world revolve around them. When the child becomes the decision maker in your home, when the child is always told yes, when the child is empowered to make decisions that children don't have the capacity to make, in a child-centered world, what will happen is they will become lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, instead of lovers of God. So parents, your job is to set boundaries. Your job is to say no. Your job is to discipline your children as the Lord instructed them to. And, and when they challenge those boundaries, because that's the child's job, right? Our job as parents is set the boundaries and enforce them. The child's job is, I'm going to push the boundaries. I'm going to try to break the boundaries. That's what children do. That's their job. And all too often, parents throw up their hands. You know, 
I'll give you a good example of how you know if you are parenting your child or if they are driving your home. If at the end of your sentence you say the word okay, then they're running the show. Let's not stand on the table, okay? Kids go, no, it's not okay. I want to stand on the table. I don't care if the meal's done. I'm done. I want down from the meal, right? So you have to train. It's your job, whether they're little kids or they're teenagers, it's your job to set the boundaries and train them that life doesn't revolve around them, that they're to be a lover of God, not a lover of self or a lover of pleasure. And that means sometimes we say no. And I want to empower you as parents. I'm not criticizing. Please hear that. I want to empower you today in church that you leave here like, I am doing the right thing when I say no. I am doing the right thing when I, that I need to enforce the boundaries. My husband or my wife, we need to get on the same page for the benefit of our children or they'll end up as a lover of self and a lover of pleasure instead of a lover of God. So you do that. So what do we do? In our house, we had to do different things. It's like as our kids were lo- young, like the first thing we taught them is do not touch the TV. Because when my kids were young, the TVs were not widescreen and they were not flat panel. They were like 800 pounds of death. I mean, it could kill an adult, right, if it fell on the adult. So, you know, I, some of you remember trying to lift that TV, and that thing was just a big box, and, and, you know, and it's just awful. But even nowadays, we say, you know, now don't touch the TV. And then they go up to it, and they look at you, look at the TV. They think you can't see their hand. And they touch it, right? And then they're like, what are you going to do about it? My job is to test the boundaries. What are you going to do? And so we correct our children. We train them. We would train them on things like this. When we go to someone else's house, we stay in the room that we're invited to. Well, how do you get them to do that? You could talk about it, right? But how do you get them to do it? Well, we would work on that in our home. We would train our children so that when we went to someone else's house, they wouldn't just cause, you know, the tornado to go throughout the whole house and cause debris. We have debris. You know, Bill Paxton out there, it's here. Um, your kids are at their house. No, no, the thing is we would stay in the room that we were invited to. So on the drive, even on the way over, because we trained at home, we would say, boys, what would be good behavior when we're going over to the Millette's house for the triplet's birthday? What would be, what would be good behavior? Well, we ought to stay in the room that we're invited to. Yes. Yes, that's great. What else? We ought to stay at the table till the meal is finished. Yes. That is so good. What would happen if you don't? And they typically knew. So again, the choice is now up to them. But we would work. We would train. It's a hard work at the beginning when the kids are little. It's this much work. But let me tell you why by the time they're teenagers, it's this much work. And some of us have it backwards. We want to give them all the freedoms to make the world all about them when they're young. Guess how much work it's going to be for you when they're a young adult. It's the upside down pyramid. Which are you going to choose? I want to empower you today to begin to train your children. Now please listen. When you and I read through that list... All of us at some point go, I-, I relate to that list. There are times I've been rash, conceited, abusive, proud, arrogant, right? All those things. And those things are part of the nature of being born into a sin nature. But the good news is this, that with Christ, when you receive Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross in your life, you get God's Holy Spirit. So we're not simply consumed by these things, but that we have a way out. And so I don't want you to beat yourself up that you feel those things or you're tempted in those areas. Tempted to make life all about yourself. Tempted to pursue pleasure. That's a normal temptation. But praise be to God that we have a Holy Spirit inside of us who can empower us 
to say no to sin and begin to run after righteousness if we'll participate with what he wants to do in us. Will you participate with his good news? If you're taking notes, among the religious people, the love of self and the love of pleasure are wrapped in religious activity. But their speech and their actions deny the power of Jesus Christ. See, there are plenty of people who are the religious leaders of the day, but they would look good on the outside, but their, their religion was performance. Their religion was religious acts. They would hide behind the pomp and the circumstance. And on the inside, there was no transformation. There was no change. And so Jesus spoke his most direct words at religious leaders of his day. These were the people who should know better, but in addition to the Old Testament law, they had made a second book called the Mishnah, and this book had over 3,000 laws that they were demanding people obey, and they had gotten away from the heart of the law. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a little gnat, but you swallow a whole camel, right? An unclean animal. You strain out a little irritating gnat from your soup, but you're, you're consuming what is off limits in full. He says again, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. And woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of all the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus was saying this. These religious leaders, they loved the concept of righteousness as much as it made them look good everybody else. So they bought the concept, but as far as a transformative practice in their life, and so Jesus uses some examples. The first one he uses is this. He's saying, you guys, you, you even take your spices, a very small thing, and you tithe off your spices. It was an agricultural society. They probably grew or received even their spices, and they would tithe off that. A very right thing to do according to Old Testament law. But he says, listen, you're doing that very small little thing, but the big things that have the power of God, you're neglecting justice, faithfulness, and mercy. Which do you think has the power of God? Justice, faithfulness, and mercy? Or the tithe off the spices? He's saying you should be doing both. But you've neglected the bigger piece. Bigger one. He says to them, listen, again, they, were, they followed God in the concepts as much as it looked, made them look good on the outside. But on the inside... They are consumed by greed and self-indulgence. They were lovers of self, not lovers of God. They were lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. These are false and unsatisfying lovers. They're terrible lovers. They're no good. Yet we pursue them at times, don't we? And then the thing that he accuses them of is that they were people-pleasing to look good on the outside. Do you remember what the Pharisees said when they decided, finally, we're going to kill Jesus? 
They said, look, the entire world is going after him. Look, the whole world's going after him. So they made plans to kill Jesus. Why? Because they wanted the whole world to go after who? Themselves. So they wanted it to go around them. They wanted a self-centered world. They wanted to be the center of the universe. And they wanted to look good in other people's eyes. Jesus said, again, on the outside, you're like this beautiful tomb. But on the inside, you've got everything rotten, everything unclean. And he says, listen, when you pursue loving self and loving pleasure, you're going to find out that you're dead on the inside. They're terrible lovers. And you can't even act righteously. See, I love when a person moves from the concept. Let's say the concept is, I should pray with other people. And it's a scary concept for some, but they think I should pray because there's power. When people come together to pray, I should do that. And they move from the concept of that to actually doing that. Will you watch this video? Hi, I'm Tani Brown, and this is how I got involved with praying. I serve on the morning prayer team, and so I come here at 8.15, and there's a group of men that have been coming for years, and I didn't know about it till just probably a couple months ago. And so I joined there, and that's where I serve. Praying out loud is not something that I'm comfortable with at all. Like, I knew God was putting on my heart to join the prayer group, but like, I'm such a resistant person. I always stand back, but like I know like God does amazing things like when he takes you out of your comfort zone. And um, so I've learned a lot by just listening to the three other guys that have been coming faithfully for years, um, how to pray out loud and how important prayer is and like the amazing things that um, God does during prayer. By watching the example of others and like I know through community, like God can do amazing things and I know that how important prayer is and like a group setting, and God calls us to it, and so I know that he could do great things for the church like, um, if we come together and pray. So even though it's uncomfortable, I, I do it. <laughs> Isn't that cool? We move from the concept to actually doing it. When we move, we run away from what is our heart, our bent, maybe even our resistance, and we begin to run toward where the power is. There's power in prayer. When we stop complaining about our problems only, but we start running to the power of prayer with our problems, we will see a difference. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Paul instructs Timothy to avoid some false teachers. These false teachers were exhibiting all these characteristics that we just listed out. And there's some more characteristics of these false teachers. And I want to address those in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. He's talking about these false teachers to Timothy. He says, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly, their foolishness, right, will be clear to everyone. If you're taking notes, I want you to understand some things about what Paul is saying. He's saying that wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. But in the same way, wrong living can lead to embracing wrong doctrines and beliefs. See, it would make sense in our mind. If you believe wrong, then you're going to act wrong. But sometimes you and I have a crisis of faith. You say, this is how I'm behaving, so I have to change my beliefs to match how I'm behaving. 
And so we bring our behavior, we think that's our identity, and so we're trying to change our behavior, uh, to ma- our beliefs, to match how we're already behaving, right? So wrong living can lead to embracing wrong doctrines. We're going to look for them. We're going to seek them out. We're going to look for the kind of teachers who will teach and not call us to repentance. We're going to look for the kind of teachers who will teach and say that God is all about you and God is your boyfriend and God is all just there for you. And so what you're going to do is you're going to use God to be a lover of self. You're going to say, God, I expect you to make my life comfortable. I expect you to make my life good. God, I expect you to handle all my problems. God, I expect you to make me not uncomfortable. And you're asking a God who stretched out his arms and experienced incredible discomfort and horrible life experiences so that you and I could have joy everlasting in heaven. I just don't see it in the Bible. I see that Jesus came as a suffering servant and he calls us to go and do likewise, to take up our cross and to follow him. Cross is an instrument of death, but we don't like dying to self. We'd rather be a lover of self. We'd rather be a lover of pleasure, right? It's so easy. These people that are being deceived they're continually learning about everything except the knowledge of the truth. And when it says knowledge of the truth, that's not head knowledge. They're learning about everything, but they're not experiencing like firsthand, I know Jesus. I'm experiencing the power of God in my life. I'm walking in relationship with him. I'm learning from his word. I'm coming to the Holy Spirit and asking God's Holy Spirit for help. And he's changing me in ways I cannot change myself. I couldn't. I tried. They don't have that firsthand knowledge. They're always learning something. They're always learning something that sounds very Christian and very new. They, this, they don't have this knowledge of the truth. And so they float from one Christian sounding philosophy or false teaching or concept to another. They're never learning. They're never knowing through firsthand experience the power of God. And at that point, legalism becomes really outwardly attractive to some. Because you just make yourself look really good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Greed, self-indulgence, what's that? What's greed? Greed is love of self. You can be greedy about anything. It doesn't just have to be money. You can be greedy about all sorts of things, and that's all just love of self. What's self-indulgence? The pleasure for self, right? I want to indulge in whatever. And so we have this experience. We become lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, and we find out, you know what? They're just, they're terrible lovers. They cannot satisfy That's why we need circles. That's why you and I need to be in a circle group. Because in a circle group, it's a place where when someone else shares transparently, you go, well, well, maybe I could share, but what's really going on with me? And so you become aware. You start saying, I'm becoming self-aware that that's how I act too. I really am becoming a lover of self, and I want to be a lover of God. And so as you're in a circle group, you're able to share and just become real with God and with yourself and then with others. So what happens? You're encountering God. You're now growing through community so you can go live your calling. You're becoming more and more a lover of God and less and less a lover of self. I love this building. Because this building used to be a gym, and what's a gym? A gym is a house of self-worship, right? You go to the gym to make yourself look good. You check out everybody else. It's a, that whole culture, the whole environment is a house of self-worship. And God flipped this building to make it a house of worship. It's the same thing he does with you and me. 
He takes a house that's all about self-worship. We're all about ourselves. We're all about us. We're all about the love of self. We're all about the pleasures of life. And he takes this house and he takes us and he puts his Holy Spirit in us and he takes a former shell that has completely served self and he makes us a house of worship. Why do you need to worship? Because you were created for it. Because you've been created as a former house of worship and you now become, you have worship of self and you become now a home, the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You are the church. You are the one who now turns and worships God and we come together and we do that corporately and it's beautiful. But as we become lovers of God, we begin to worship and become a walking worship service. Let me talk with you about four characteristics of people who are easily deceived. See, Satan at this point continues his targeting of women. This is kind of what Paul's indicating. He's reflecting back. Remember, at the, in the beginning, you had Satan who came to the garden and he tempted who first? He deceived who first? Eve. Now, don't be, you know, riled up about that because Adam got deceived right next to her. He was right there. He got tempted. He sinned too. But for some reason, that's what Satan does. And Paul's almost alluding that these false teachers in his day, at least his experience was, was that they were worming their ways into homes. And with this false teaching, they were grabbing the attention of gullible or foolish women, he says in the passage. But we have to ask, they're, they're silly or weak people. Is it women only? No. Paul's saying, some of my experience has been this. In other words, in the same way that the Satan wants to deceive He's going to deceive people. And any of us in this room could be foolish or gullible. There have been times we've been easily deceived. We've been foolish. We've been stupid. We've been gullible. We've been weak. And I love what Paul says in the previous letter that came to Timothy because he's speaking of himself. Listen to what he says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in what? Ignorance. And unbelief. What was his ignorance? It was the hide behind the legalism on the outside and try to look perfect when in fact he was full of self-worship and pleasure. And he persecuted the church. He persecuted the believers of God. And in that time, God reached to him. So he says this, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. In verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. What did God do in Paul's life? Changed him from being a house of self-worship and made him a worshiper, a lover of the living God. Paul's talking about himself. Listen, for you and me in this room, but for the grace of God, there go you or I. Right? Aren't you and I prone to wander? Don't you feel it? Aren't you prone to leave the God you love as the hymn once describes? We say, take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy throne above. That's what we want. God, I feel it. I feel these things that you describe. And I can be easily deceived. Are the women only? No. Paul's talking about himself. He's saying it's a human condition. But he says, here's what happens for those who are there. He said, another condition of people who are easily deceived is that they're weighted down by guilt and desires. They're weighted down by guilt and desires. That's the condition. They, they have the, enough knowledge to feel guilty, 
But they have these huge desires, and please notice that their desires drive their behavior, not them controlling their desires. In the previous chapter, he reminds us, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, run away from what's wrong, run toward the righteousness of Christ, the power of Christ, the help of God's Holy Spirit. The third condition is that these people are always learning, but always turning to false teaching that seems to promise relief from their guilt, but it doesn't require repentance. So it's a teaching, but it's a teaching that doesn't require you and I to have to do anything. It's a teaching that tickles the ears, but it doesn't require you and I. It doesn't set the boundaries of God. In fact, it kind of washes the boundaries of God away and says, God is love. He's just love, love, love. It's all going to be good. Instead, a right teaching, like Paul's instructing Timothy, is that we're going to run away from sin. We're going to flee the evil desires of youth. We're going to run toward righteousness. Otherwise, we run in a circle. We bump into ourselves. Your beliefs must require you to run away from sin and run toward righteousness. If they're not, maybe something's wrong with the picture of who God is in your life. He doesn't want you to be loaded down with guilt. He wants you to understand your sin and come to his grace, run to his love, run to his power, run to his help. He wants to woo you. It's no accident you're here today. It's no accident if your heart feels cold or if your heart feels hardened or it's been so much time since you've connected with God. He today is saying, I want to draw you. I want to woo you to myself out of my great love. These people last are never able to come to a firsthand knowledge of the truth. They have secondhand faith. They're believing on somebody else's word. They're believing on somebody else's opinion. They're grabbing the concept, but they don't apply it, so they never experience it themselves. They don't have a firsthand relationship with Jesus. They're hiding behind the religious behaviors and concepts, but they're not walking in relationship with Jesus. They don't know the power of God. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the whole body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, he's saying God's given us leaders so that we mature as a body, so these teachers help unleash us to encounter God, grow through community, live our calling, so the whole body of Christ is being built up. And then he says something very interesting. He said, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. See, what's the picture of the immature? It's being blown back and forth, not knowing, I don't know, that sounds pretty Christian. I don't know, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good to me. I don't know. But because you have firsthand knowledge of the truth, he says this, instead, speaking the truth in love, We grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. God wants you and I to keep growing, to keep going, to grow up in him. These people are never able to come to a firsthand knowledge of the truth. 
You know, this week we hosted here at Sun Grove the Rayleigh's Corporate Summit. So Rayleigh's, Bel Air, Knob Hill all had their corporate summit here. There's managers, district managers, VPs, president, CEO. They're all here. And they bring in a, a speaker to talk with them uh, about purpose. And the guy's name was Kevin Ames. And I love when we do things like that because even our staff gets to hear really high-quality uh, leadership instruction. And he told the story, and I want to tell it to you. So I don't know the source of it, but Kevin Ames told me this, told this story. He said there was a guy, he was getting really good at business. He started making money, and so he went to stage one. You know what stage one is? When you start to make money and when you start to become a man, when you start to do that, then your stage one is get stuff, right? Get the house, get the car, and uh, he got those things, and he found out they're unsatisfying. It didn't work. It didn't satisfy. And so then he went to stage two. Stage two is get bigger stuff. Right? So he went to the bigger house. He went to the better car. He got these things. And guess what? At the end, they didn't sat their terrible lovers. They didn't satisfy. So he thought, well, someone told him, well, maybe you should be generous. So he said, okay, I'll find an organization that I like. I like buy into their values. I'll find a cause and, and I'll, I'll write a big check. So he wrote a check and guess what? Didn't really satisfy. And they said, well, maybe I need to go with the organization. Maybe the next stage is I go with them. So he went with this organization to Africa, and he went and he began to put together wheelchairs that they were giving to kids who have disabilities and don't have mobility. And so he, he went, and he just knows how the game is played. You go on the trip. At the end, they ask for a big check. You write a big check. And he's like, I was still unsatisfied. So he said, I'll give it one last shot. So he went on a trip with the organization. He's assembling a wheelchair. He takes that wheelchair that he's assembled, and he takes it to the house of a little African boy who has a disability and can't move around, and they wheel it in the house, and they take this boy out of his bed, and they get him in the chair, and they get it fitted for him in the chair, and the kid looks up at him, and the kid grabs his leg and starts talking but won't let go. And the guy's staying there, and he doesn't know the dialect, so he, he doesn't know what the kid is saying, but the kid just is refusing, he's like got a vice grip, he's re refusing to let go. And so he calls over a translator, and the translator comes over, and the translator listens to what the kid says, and he turns to this man, and he says, listen, the kid says, you can't go yet because I've not yet memorized your face. And I need to memorize your face so that when I get to heaven, I can thank you again for bringing me this chair and giving me mobility. It was in that moment that he aligned his purpose with his action. And some of you are, are running, you don't know your purpose. You've been a lover of self, a lover of pleasure, and, and they're unsatisfying lovers. And God is calling you, your purpose is to be a lover of God. Your purpose is to love people as God would love them because you love God. Not so God will love you, not so people will love you and think that you're great on the outside but you're filthy on the inside, but that you love God who will clean you on the inside and that you love people, you will know your purpose. You want a life on fire? Love people who can never repay you. Will you watch this video?
Man, we give it up for our Mexico missions team that just got back. A lot of them are here in the room right now, and I'll tell you what, like that experience uh, wasn't easy. They had a car break down. They had to get it fixed. I mean, there was, they had to push one vehicle through the border, <laughs> like human-powered. Yeah, we're good. And uh, they had a lot of experiences. It wasn't easy, but let me tell you something. I guarantee you that God got their heart in a way because they saw how their work translate to the purpose for those people. They're lovers of God, not just lovers of self. And it all starts with a relationship with God. If you've had beliefs about God, but you're ready to walk into relationship, maybe you've had no beliefs about God, but you believe now that Jesus is drawing you. You want your sins forgiven. You want to know him. And will you bow your heads, close your eyes. Everybody in the room, just considering your own life. Believers in the room, this is your time to consider. God, I've been loving myself. I've been loving pleasure. And I need to come back to you. I need to run back to you. I need to come back to loving you. And in the same way, right now, maybe there's some of you in this room and you just need Jesus. You're like, I need the step one. I need to to know the love of God. And if that's you, then you pray a prayer like this today. Just say, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation on the inside. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. That you were buried in the grave. That you rose to life because you're God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins and wash me white as snow because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.